Welcome to Making Waves. In today's program, we're featuring interviews with Anya Kangieser and Jessica Thompson. They'll both be speaking at this year's Transect Symposium, which is a three-day symposium on radio and transmission art, hosted by New Adventures in Sound Art. The symposium will happen in Toronto from May 22nd to the 25th. But today on Making Waves, we're first going to listen to an interview with Anya Kangieser. She is a lecturer at the University of Goldsmiths, London. She examines sound through the disciplines of geography, communication, and sociology. In the past, she's been active in the free and pirate radio movements in Australia and Europe. And that is where we started our discussion. I was wondering if you could um, tell me uh, a little bit how you got interested in audio, because um, listening to the audio programs that you have, uh, they they have a mixture of um, both academic discourse and uh, and a kind of documentary journalism and uh yet they they don't appear to be made for you know a uh you know in, in a public radio or anything like that that where there's some kind of uh uh you know official radio stamp They're, they seem to be very uh self self-directed and self-determined and i was interested in how how you came about that form well i initially got involved with making radio um, around about 10 years ago now. Um, I was quite interested in the political radio that was going on in the 1970s in Italy, Um, radio like Radio Lice, where radio really served the purpose of opening up very um, multiple channels of communication. So it wasn't just about a transmitter and a receiver and that kind of one-way communication. It was more being used in some senses like, um, yeah, like multiple transmitters, multiple receivers. So this ongoing communicative uh, device. So my interest in radio came from thinking about how radio can, can you know, move beyond that one-way or two-way um, transmission reception format into something that's much more open and much more messy, I suppose. Um, from that, I was doing a lot of community and DIY radio. So I was doing a lot of community radio in Melbourne and then also in the UK and in Germany. Um, And part of that involved running radio building workshops, so uh, microtransmitter building workshops, which I took very much from people like Tetsuo Kagawa. Um, One of the things that I really, really love about micro and DIY radio is that element of, well, DIYness, basically, Um, that really beautiful, I always call it craptasticness, (laughs) <laughs> uh, where you hear all of the faults and all of the failures. And I guess in at the same time, it's very intimate. Like you hear all of the, the passions in voices and where people stumble and where things don't really work. And I think that's what I loved the most about it. So I was never really interested in commercial radio and I was never really interested in making pristine sounding radio at all, actually, because what I was more interested in was the process itself and that kind of, that 
potential to relate with different people in different ways through the process of making radio. And how do you feel what you can get across that way that you can't get across through the regular channels? I think what's really important is that there's an understanding that anyone can do radio, that radio isn't this kind of or doesn't need to be this realm that's only accessible to people that have got an education in journalism or, you know, any other kind of media or that have the right voice or the right accent or the right opportunities. I mean, I think it's really important that radio is understood as a technique, as a device for communication, not necessarily as this the, the way the media is used, which is as a hierarchical device, um, that only some people can access to transmit from. And I mean, I think, of course, social media and citizen journalism um, over the past 10 years has really changed the way that people approach radio and that the way that people approach transmitting information anyway. But I think that there's still a particular beauty to to live radio broadcast and to kind of building your own radios that sits alongside all of those other kinds of uh, social media channels. Now, I also wanted to bring in your uh, your academic uh, work and how that how you situate that in tandem with your your radio your radio interests. Well, it's funny because for a very long time I held my radio practice as something quite apart from the academic work that I did. So I'm a political geographer. Uh, and I, I never really wrote about radio and I never brought it into my academic work. And a few years ago, a friend of mine who was very much involved in pirate radio um, in, in the 80s in Amsterdam, who does a lot of work around radio and communication still, but he kind of said to me, you know, you, you really need to bring these worlds together because you can't, you can't hold them apart because it's something that you spend all of your time doing and that you're quite passionate about. So I thought about bringing radio in, but what ended up coming more in was sound rather than radio itself. And and the voice kind of came in more than radio itself. And that's been infusing what I've been doing for the past few years now, oftentimes in less visible ways, but it's certainly underlying a lot of it and the direction that I see myself still continuing to go in. Is that partly... Um... A product of today with the internet that there that the use of media is uh, more you could say modular you could have video you could have audio you can have a snippet of audio that's contextualized with text um, there isn't a you know a, when it's just the audio medium of radio it may suggest certain limitations of presentation and expectations um, but with uh, in the in the context of doing your academic work in a internet based world uh do you find that there's that that may have allowed for that expansion and and uh, look at just sound itself or or in the, in your case the voice i think so i mean it's very slowly happening i'm i'm working with two other sound artists and geographers jonathan pryor and michael gallagher uh, writing about sound and geography and and the the necessity for sonic geographies and imagining uh, imagining a, a sonic understanding of of the landscape and and of the world around us 
it's slowly taking hold, but it's still very minor. I mean, what I generally tend to do is I present a lot of my work through sound. So I create kind of textual and sonic essays in a sense. Um, And I've broadcast them over radio, over different radio formats, as well as in lecture theatres. And people always seem to respond very, very well to them, but it is still always with more surprise, I think, than what people respond to video or image-based creative practices within academia. So there is a little bit more of an openness, I think, through digital technologies and digital forms of presentation, but it's still a little bit shocking for people to work with sound rather than to work with image. And... um... You, you're interested. You said you're interested in just talking about the voice and and sound. And could you uh, maybe expand more on that on t- some of the topics that you've looked at, and particularly from a geography uh, point of view, cultural geography and sociology point of view. Well, my interest in voice really came from being involved in political organizing for a long time, and that was a very very collective process and. My interest really sprung from the fact that there wasn't much attention paid to the way that people speak. There's a lot of attention always paid to what people say, so obviously the content, but not how they speak and what those sounds of speech or or sonic articulations that aren't necessarily words, what they might be communicating as well. So I became very interested in just trying to think about how we might approach those non-speech communications, not not from the perspective of, you know, the sounds of the voice being authentic, you know, an authentic manifestation of someone, um, but more just out of a curiosity of how we might respond to sounds in ways that aren't necessarily conscious, uh, that aren't the first things that we think about. And there's a lot of attention to what body language might say and how we might interpret someone's body language, but not necessarily how the sounds of people's voices or the sounds of particular spaces of different kinds of environments, how they might affect our capacities to listen to each other and how we respond to each other. So that's really where my interest in that came from. And I became also a lot more interested in oral architectures, so really how the sounds of different spaces affect uh our abilities to relate to those spaces. So the atmospheres, the environments and ambiances of particular spaces and how that really affected how we might communicate and to each other and relate to those spaces. And, uh, and now I was wondering about um, academic presentation, about the way people speak in a, in a lecture. Mm-hmm. And there is a kind of official way of speaking that the way there is in the radio is different uh different and and the language is different um is that something that um could be tackled in this context (laughs) well i think absolutely i mean i think academic language and ways of speaking reproduce really their own problems over and over again. And I don't think that's an individual problem. I think that's a very structural problem. And I don't think that academics are taught how to communicate outside of those parameters necessarily. And there is a lot invested in being able to communicate in those ways that are recognised. I mean, yeah, there's a there's a lot of 
elitism and knowledge tied up with particular ways of speaking, of course. I do think that bringing in sound is a way to break that up a little bit. I mean, for instance, if, even simply if you include soundscapes or interviews within presentations so that rather than quote something, you might actually listen to something. I think that's already a way to just break up that, you know, monotone of, of academic speaking. So I do think that it is a way to make academic work more approachable perhaps and just show the cracks a little bit, which is what I'm very interested in doing is to actually show those points where interventions might be made or you might be able to leverage something else into there so it's not that smooth kind of academic talk. Yeah, I think uh, that also allows other levels of engagement. Absolutely, absolutely. You wrote uh, a text on the the, the uh, uh, sonic geography of the voice, and uh, you have a number of audio clips related to that. And um, and I was wondering if you could expand a bit about that project and uh, and, and what it's dealing with. That project specifically looked at uh, the way that within political organising, especially sort of anti-racist, um, capitalist critical, anti-homophobic political organising dealt with different tonal pitches, rhythms, uh, cadences and also silences within those organisational spaces. And the sound clips were short snippets of interviews that I did with people that had been involved for a long time within those organisational spaces, asking how those kinds of vocal inflections affected their abilities to listen and to respond to people. And it was actually really interesting. Um, the range of responses that I got to that work were quite interesting because what ended up coming out was quite a lot of people came up to me saying, you know, I often get looked at weirdly because of my accent or people can't understand me if I speak too fast or people don't have patience with me because I speak too slowly or you know, other people, as the interviews kind of showed, saying, well, I can't deal with someone who has a high-pitched voice. I don't like listening to a high-pitched voice. Or, you know, when people speak slowly, I get bored. Or when someone's silent, then that's very, very awkward. And really what I hoped to do with that was just to get people to think a little bit more about how, yeah, how how they might respond to people in ways that, could be a little bit more aware of, of their own judgments and evaluations that they were making of people. And it's not just for a political context at all. It's, it's for all contexts. I mean, you think about in workplaces, in friendships, in whatever environment that you're in, I think that paying a little bit more attention to our own responses to people's voices is a good thing to do. And having uh, done that research and look and experienced uh, that, do you look at uh, your early work in uh, pirate radio and free radio uh, differently? Do you hear it differently? I mean, I always, what I really love about pirate and free radio, especially listening to old broadcasts, is the really fragmented and, and breaking up kind of quality of, of those broadcasts. And I know that's a really, <laughs> I don't know, that's a really outdated 
listening kind of way of listening or aesthetic tendency that I have. But it it doesn't surprise me because I always loved the points where things go wrong. You know, I've always been attracted to those kinds of the stutters and the failures and you know, when you can hear someone coughing or mumbling or talking, facing away from the microphone, doing all of the things that you're not meant to do. So I think it it's just another another articulation of a constant uh fascination that I've had with with those kinds of those kinds of things, things that are very imperfect. With the Transex Symposium coming up, I was wondering if um you were able to uh uh, let us in a bit on what you're going to speak about. Well, what I've started looking at recently, and I think this very much coincided as well with struggling through some London winters um, after coming from Australia, but I've been quite interested in how people understand what nature is and what nature sounds like um, because I've been for years now doing field recordings that I don't archive properly and just put onto hard drives. And I have thousands and thousands of field recordings that are through various iterations of microphones that I've built myself that, you know, I've bought that are of better quality, that are of really terrible quality, just all of these sound recordings of various environments. And I realized very much that there are such strong imaginations with what constitutes the natural environment. And this this is something that we really need to be thinking about, especially now when there are such accelerating reports coming out about, you know, obviously global climate crisis and how we might imagine the future of nature to sound. So I've been working quite a lot recently with uh, sonifications of climate data and looking at the use of sound and radio within geophysics, so within atmospheric recordings um, within seismic recordings, but also looking at how sound artists and transmission artists have been using data and translating them into sound to think about, you know, the ice caps melting, to think about increasing heat within cities, uh, plant life, funguses, rainfall, all of these different areas and how we might understand the environment to to sound differently from field recordings. So that's very much what I'm going to be talking about is this kind of necessity to rethink this very deeply ingrained division between the nature, uh, the natural and the social, and to think about how we might listen differently to the ecologies around us so that we can take a little bit more care and be a little bit more respectful of the worlds that we inhabit. You're listening to Making Waves. That was an interview with Anya Kangeser in anticipation of a keynote lecture that she's going to be giving at the Transex Symposium this coming May. We're going to listen to a short excerpt from a program that she made for Dissident Island Radio. In this one, she spoke to members of Radio Patapo, a long-running pirate radio station in Amsterdam. Well, what first attracted me uh, was somebody who just kind of dragged me to do a radio show, and then once I got there was when I sat there in a studio all by myself, because in pirate radio you're not like in a regular radio station accompanied by a technician, you're just sitting there like in the cockpit of an airplane and you have all these buttons at your hands and this microphone in front of your face and you know 
it's, it covers, your voice covers the entire city and trucks and, and cab drivers and, and that, that was an amazing feeling and what attracts, what attracts me now is uh, that I know so much more about radio now and I know how flexible it is, what it can all be and uh, that's why I still love radio. Mm-hmm. Well, what attracts me is that nobody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you think. <laughs> there's always someone well, out there. Probably there's somebody w- once in a while listening, but uh, one of the attractive things about it is that nobody's listening. And you're just in the, in the in out of space uh, all by yourself. And uh, <laughs> that's it. And it's, well, the way I was started doing it was just kind of survival, so sort of a meaning of life. <laughs> yeah, what, what, uh, if I can add to that, uh, the, the objective truth is, of course, that the listener is always alone. Well, the talker yeah. may pretend that he's reaching the masses. He doesn't. He can only speak to his mother and try to creep in your ear and feel good there, like uh, hang here. You know. That's the deeper truth that nobody... <coughs> can deny, but still does, especially radio people. Mm. So you're not talking to nobody, really, you're talking to yourself. Oh, I, I totally disagree with that. No. It's completely well, I, 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 can, I can tell that because... Well, I, you compare it to television, we didn't, Exactly, we didn't have television. When I was a kid until 14 or so, we didn't have television. Radio was part of my landscape. All oh, but all radio is still in the workplace uh, a thing that reaches many rather than yeah, one. I'm talking about why I yeah. am fascinated, not yeah, about yeah. your oh, oh, okay. Oh, that's oh. another thing. I, I thought you were talking in general about radio. No, we don't need that, do we? We wanted some personal... Well, this is a general question. Yeah. But it's also a personal question, because what attracts people to radio is very, very different. People often always seem to say different things. Yeah. yeah. So. I want to say one more thing. Um, when I was uh, thinking this morning about talking to you, I was thinking, what, what can I say to her that I think now, you know, really uh, makes sense? And that is, you know, I think the big misunderstanding about pirate radio and free radio and alternative radio is that it tries to be mainstream and it tries to reach the masses. And this is just false. It's not a way into uh, mass media. It's a way out. So that, to me, is uh, the statement I want to make. Mm -hmm. It's a way out. That was an excerpt from an interview with members of Radio Patapo, which was created by Anya Kangeser. Also speaking at the Transic Symposium, which we're featuring today, is Jessica Thompson. She's a Canadian media artist working in sound, performance, and mobile technologies. She was featured in the Deep Wireless Festival in 2009, and her mobile installations have been exhibited internationally. I spoke with Jessica this past week at the NASA space in Toronto. A lot of people, when I say the word transmission art, they kind of scratch their head wondering what it is, and sometimes I wonder too. And um, do you have a, a, you know, a definition that that you go by, a a way of of framing it? Uh, I I think so. I mean, with, I mean, it's not unusual that it's a hard question to answer because, I mean, it's it's always changing. So 
at one time, you know, 10 years ago when we were talking about transmission art, we were really just talking about sound. And now that we have uh, the capability of using microprocessors to make um, smart objects, to network objects together, um, transmission is now extended to include things like data. And so when I think about transmission art, I really do think about any art form that involves the transmission or transcoding of things from a sender to a receiver. And so uh, if anything is being transmitted, whether it's sound or whether it's it's data, um, I consider it transmission art. So it doesn't have to happen like uh, listeners are listening right now over the radio mm-hmm. necessarily even, um, nor does it have to happen in a studio. Right. Uh, what um, are some of the places where this takes place? Uh, well, with my work, my work always happens on the street. Um, so... Uh, what I'm interested in is uh, two types of things. I'm interested in generating sound through the body, so taking um, motion of the user and then uh, transmitting it into into sound or transcoding it into sound. And then, but I'm also really interested in the social situations that happen when sound is broadcast out of the body, um, and because it turns uh, everyday public space into to social space. What do you mean by transmitting out of the body? Um, I mean, when we, when we actually generate and broadcast sound through the moving body. Um, so with a lot of my work, uh, what I am doing is I'm using uh, sensor-based gestural interaction to actually broadcast sound. So, for example, um, with a project like, I don't know, Soundbike, um, that's a bike that you borrow and ride, and when you gain enough speed, the bike starts giggling, and when you go faster, the bike starts laughing. And so it's taking this this idea of riding a bike and actually using it uh, as a way of, of generating laughter, which changes according to your speed. Your own personal laugh track. It's my own personal, yeah, it's also my laughter too, because I was available and free, um, but that's an, old, <laughs> that's an older piece from uh, 2005. There seems to be sort of that process through a lot of my work as I, I take, um, at least with the, the the works that generate sound outside the body. It's this idea of taking some sort of gestural interaction, transcoding it into sound that can be easily changed and modified by that interaction. So it's not just, you know, playing a track in response to, you know, riding a bike, um, because that would be very easy to do, but it would be create kind of a close situation where you just be, you know, the user would be kind of like a glorified button pusher, and I don't like that type of interaction. And so, um, you know, the idea that it changes according to you is, is really, really important. It becomes an embodied experience that way. Um, so when you're pedaling the bike, mm-hmm. um, your speed changes the yeah. the, uh, the the laugh or the, the thing. But I think that for the user, because um, they're riding in public, they're mm-hmm. not riding in a controlled situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what are some of the, um, I would think that aspect of, of uh, the audience member becoming a performer effectively mm-hmm. and uh, being on the spot in public uh, with this suspicious laughter. Yes. Um, is that, I mean, what are some of the feedback and responses and instances that have happened with that? You know, it's it's funny because people often will use the bike for trickery. So they will ride behind another cyclist or they'll um, sort of use it to be kind of stealth, stealth because the laughter is very, very loud and no one knows what to make of it. Um, but when people 
discover that someone's riding this laughing bike. Because also it's very conspicuous, so you had this yellow box on the back of your bike as well. So you really, it, it, the speaker becomes a signifier, and because it's so bright, you really can't miss the person riding the bike. So people will often kind of laugh in response. And, you know, sometimes what happens when I show it in uh, festival situations is people sign it out, and then they um, you'll send one person out with it, and then another person returns entirely. Um, the same thing happens with uh, the swinging suitcase, which actually works um, similar to the sound bike. Um, the swinging suitcase is um, a, it's housed in an American tourist's suitcase, which is those sort of indestructible suitcases from the 60s, and they make a really good speaker. And so what you do is you, you pick up this, um, this suitcase, and it generates and broadcasts the sound of a flock of house sparrows who multiply as they're being used. And uh, due to a reset feature in the code, um, I actually have it time out after a certain amount of time. So when you're moving it around and you move it repeatedly for a certain amount of time, the circuit times out, the bird sounds change, and then you actually change your motion with it. So as you're trying to sort of play these birds through this piece, the birds are actually playing you. So it becomes a dialogue between uh, the gesture of the user and then the sound that you are creating. And with that one, um, you have, uh, you know, another social situation that happens where you, you attract a lot of attention. Um, I actually had to document that piece in the fall, and it was really interesting actually having my subjects out in public and the people who noticed them and the people who didn't notice them. And uh, then, of course, at this time of the year, because it's spring, um, you hear house sparrows all through Toronto. And uh, this is the best time to fool them with the swinging suitcase because they are mating. <laughs> and so any other bird sound that they don't expect becomes a threat. And so it's not unusual to be sort of going along and playing this thing and, you know, have a bird kind of like, you know, looking at you or one once hopped up to me and kind of puffed out its chest because it was ready to fight whatever it was. So social <laughs> so situations so with people and birds. Physically get there involved and, and yeah, confront it. I don't know. I, I don't think yeah. it was the smartest house sparrow in the, in the tree, but I, I do, you know, it's, it's really interesting because they, they chirp and they have these sort of social songs and they a lot of it is delineating territory and I think that's what we do with sound as well. We use sound to broadcast um, into public spaces to kind of assert our presence in, in public space. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I do has to do with like the language of boomboxes, the language of, of lowriders, that sort of thing. Has people, have people um, challenged you in, that, in the case of that piece of um, inserting a natural sound back into the into the environment, and uh, uh, has that been a, a moral dilemma in any way? Uh, not with the birds, um, because, you know, when I was testing it, I was being ignored by birds, um, so it's really only during this sort of window of time. Um, I did get some pointed questions by um, a couple of children in Banff, so um, again, I was documenting, and, you know, um, whenever you have a video camera out in public, people always, you know, stop you and ask questions, and so my subject, uh, Leola LeBlanc, who's from Halifax, she was in actually a grocery store with these with these uh, the suitcase, and a couple of kids came up to her and very pointedly asked her if there are real birds in the suitcase, oh. and she said, well, what do you think, and would it be okay, and they said, well, it wouldn't be okay, and then the little one said, well, unless it was your pets. And then, so if, if it's your pets, it's okay to have the birds in the suitcase. But, uh. <laughs> you know, it brings up an interesting point because, you know, with the suitcase, I mean, it's just sort of, like, I'm sure everyone listening has probably seen one of these things. It's very madman, but, um, you know, it's a suitcase that's easy to pick up and swing, and it's fairly indestructible. But, you know, the because you pick it up and the first bird makes a sound, immediately we have this, we anthropomorphize the piece. 
So immediately the birds kind of become your your friends, or people will talk about the birds having a good time, etc. I once uh, brought it on in the subway in Toronto, and just the the act of actually bouncing up and down the subway, that little bit of vibration caused the birds to, of course, you know, go into this we're being moved cheering cycle. <laughs> and so people were, you know, asking me about my pets and going, oh, they sound pretty happy, pretty cheerful, and you know, because it was just we, we're sort of willing to go into that that space of make believe, which I think is kind of great. So getting back to the question of transmission art, Mm -hmm. would you say that these two pieces we've been talking about, is it about the recontextualization of a sound uh, inserted into a public space? Uh, uh, Is that the the aspect of transmission? Because it doesn't involve a radio transmission to do that. But uh, how, how does it fit within that, that definition? Or is it actually part of a different definition? Yeah, maybe into the expanded definition of, of transmission art. I mean, it's it's less to do with radio, but when you think about it, when you're on the radio, I mean, we are here. Um, we, are re- we are recording this, but if we're broadcasting live, I mean, I'd be making sounds through my body and someone else would be listening to it. And to me, that's not that um, dissimilar from uh, from the idea of shaking a box and making, making bird sounds. So the transmission happens outside of the body. It's sort of transcoding within the body and then transmission outside. And so it's a smaller space, though, of course. I mean, you have to be in the area in order to hear it and understand it. Um, with some of my network pieces, that's um, involves sort of expanding the realm of experience and sort of um, making um, the space of interaction larger. Mm-hmm. Well, in the case, uh, one of those I'm familiar with where it was a set of maps that yeah, yeah. different groups of, uh, would follow each other, but uh, you've done other works yeah. in, that, in that respect. Maybe you can expand a bit on those. I can, I can. Um, the one you're talking about is the network to Reeve, and that actually is, it's actually not a sound piece, but it is this idea of two people taking walks in in, in different city, geographically separate cities. Um, one of my more recent pieces, uh, Triangulation Device, um, actually extends the edge of the edges of the body to actually meet another person. And so um, the analogy, it's, of course, I'm, I'm sure it's very hard to sort of un- understand this uh, while you're listening to it, but if you can imagine the metaphor of two people holding the ends of a rope, um, this is what I try to accomplish through sound. So basically, it is a headphone-based piece, um, and uh, what it does is it transcodes latitude and longitude into into MIDI instruments, and you kind of walk up and down and generate these these notes, so you have a lot of consonants and dissonance as you're moving along. But what also happens is your sound is actually being transmitted to another user who has their own device and their um, their coordinates are being transmitted over to you. And so what happens is you have this really weird uh, counterpoint between the sound that you know that you're making and this other um, piece that's coming in from the other user. Um, so it's the idea of, you know, making this collaborative soundscape together. Um, so what happens with that piece, um, I've shown it in its current incarnation, I've shown it once, and that was last year in Hong Kong. And it was really interesting when uh, I was showing it. I was showing it with art students, and you know, art students do anything; they're great. Um, so, what happened was, um, you know, you had pairs who were sort of more meditative. Um, you had, you know, people who were sort of happier to wander by themselves and sort of listen to to their partner occasionally. Um, you had people who actually kept on going out of range, and then they had to go find each other again, which was kind of a lovely side effect of using XBs. And then also, um, I had a pair where they immediately decided to to play tricks on one another. So I had um, one user who you can see um, in the documentation of the piece actually running around with the piece, and he's kind of spinning around and and you know sort of running behind his. Uh, 
behind his partner and running out again because you know because you know that you are transmitting your sound it becomes a performative situation so it's a little bit of a showing off there so it's um a piece that kind of depends on people's interaction in order to create the transmission. Yeah. I mean, well, transmission will happen as, as long as both are turned on, you will transmit data. But in order to change it, you need to actually move around. Um, right. Yeah. And it's using a cell phone or? The, no, uh, it actually so uses, um, it's interesting because I was, I was torn as to whether to make this an app or not. And I think that when you're making um, sound projects for something like the iPhone, you have to take into account the sort of natural affordances of the iPhone itself. So your piece lives in the same space as the thing people use to get their email and contacts, etc. So um, some of the more successful projects that actually use the iPhone as a platform are the ones that think about how we naturally use the, the iPhone. So one of the best ones is actually Mark Shepard's uh, GPS Serendipiter. Um, but, you know, so what I ended up doing was I, I still wanted to experiment with the novelty of the object. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up using Arduino and uh, also a GPS module. Um, it's not a GPS piece, um, meaning it doesn't work only for a specific area. But the GPS is important because it's your way of getting your latitude and longitude coordinates to when you start, when you turn it on. And it helps to tell it helps uh, to tell the Arduino what direction you're going in. But basically, the piece works anywhere that it's turned on. Um, I really wanted that um, so that um, basically it, it triangulates itself. Um, so uh, with this triangulation device, what it is is it's a box that's about... If you, if you kind of take the distance from your thumb to your, your pinky finger, it's about that size. And it's a fairly flat box because one of, the, uh, one of the restrictions of the GPS unit is it has to be held pretty much horizontally or else the numbers go crazy. And so what I did was I found um, a project enclosure that actually the natural way that you hold it is with two hands in front of you. Um, it's that perfect size. Mm-hmm. It's exact. I've tried to place um, the indicator lights and the switches in a very intuitive manner. It took forever. Um, but basically, people will then walk around with this device kind of in front of them, which is interesting, too, because you have a set of white headphones. You have this light box, lightly colored box, that you're holding in front of you. And, and that's not a natural gesture for anyone. So you actually do stand out from, from the public. And I guess and it's uh, essential that it happens in the public rather than yeah. in a gallery or... Yeah, I you know I'm I'm not the best person to deal with the uh, with gallery spaces. When I'm asked to put something on walls, I'm never quite sure what to do. So I will often <laughs> I will often um, make you know a a poster or something something to do with the piece that will then help people to understand it, so that they'll then want to borrow it and get out of the gallery. Right. Yeah. My work has <laughs> my work has always taken place. Um, I've been doing this since uh, 2003, um, and I think that you know it's to me. You know, it, sound in public space is really interesting to me. Um, there's so many sounds that we have no choice but to hear. And so the idea of making your own sound and articulating your your acoustic presence in public space is important to me. As well, I think that we're in an age of collective silencing. You know, um, in, in Noise, Atali talks about how uh, social change, how sound works as a precursor to social change. And I think that currently, um, because we always have our iPods and iPhones and, and stuff around with us, because we use music as a barrier to, to interacting with one another, or we sort of use it as a bit of a social filter in public space, um, all that stuff is silent. So it's perfectly fine to be listening to you know Iron Maiden blasting through your headphones, but if you have that as a boombox, suddenly it's a big problem. Um, we don't really know how to... Increasingly, it seems that we are 
we're interacting in public space and we're engaging with, with place through our mobile devices. And I'll talk more about this at the keynote. But those interactions are very, very segregated. Um, when I go into a coffee shop and I'm using my phone to access Facebook, I'm accessing my network. Um, I'm not necessarily connecting with the person sitting next to me. Um, and we're becoming increasingly uncomfortable with this sort of unwieldy space of, of broadcast. And I think that's really, really interesting. Well, it's like more like we're broadcasting our own yeah, uh, personal pod. It's private modes um, of broadcast, eh? Uh, to, to some other virtual place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, it does bring us closer together to people that are not with us physically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, in the, I guess to wrap up, I was um, I uh, was mentioned to you before, uh, when you came in that I found uh, a recording of a piece that you made for uh, the Deep Wireless Festival in 2009. Yeah. Uh, at that time, we had a uh, ensemble of artists that we uh, kind of blind dated. Uh, you know, four-person blind date, um, <laughs> and uh, that year was yourself, uh, Lisa um, Pujinamara, and um, Brandon Labelle, and uh, Francois Girard, I believe, yeah. is the four people. And uh, you made a wonderful piece that uh, was um, uh, it was a lot of fun. And um, maybe you can tell us about that. It was called Citizen Band. I basically imagined uh, the idea of a citizen band as opposed to being a band of radio as to be those invisible bands that invade the bodies of citizens. And so at the time I was playing a lot with shortwave radios and I noticed that when you put a shortwave radio uh, next to things like a speaker or your laptop, etc., you, you generate static. And so um, the piece is in a few parts. I'm going to see if I can actually remember it right. So uh, the first part was a, a safety demonstration because, of course, these bands invade the bodies of citizens. And, of course, we're surrounded by these, you know, eight huge speakers. There's Wi-Fi in the building, all sorts of stuff. So we had a safety demonstration. So what I did was my voice came over the loudspeaker and uh, clearly and professionally instructed everyone to reach underneath um, in so that in order to protect themselves from these bands, they could put on their shielding device. So everyone reached under their seats where I had taped a, a baggie, um, sort of a large clear bag, the top bag, with um, a standard issue um, pirate hat made of tinfoil. And so everyone <laughs> had to... Standard issue. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was me with a gigantic roll of tinfoil folding uh, 120, <laughs> 120 um, um, tinfoil hats. And so we had this demonstration, and, and I got the entire audience in these uh, tinfoil hats, which I don't think that I told you in advance that I was going to do no, this, no. but there we were. So, so then the second part was uh, all four of us were in the center of the room, and I had um, a little max patch that I made where we actually used these, sh- these four handheld uh, shortwave radios as input, and we actually generated, um, you know, just sound with uh, the, the static of the speaker as an input device. And so we played around with that for a while. The third part of the performance was we unplugged our um, our um, our radios, and these were, of course, uh, hooked up with labs right into the system. So immediately, all this sort of beep boop sound got uh, replaced by static. And so we then got up and we started 
wandering around the space with these antennas out, actually trying to find um, sounds and static and sort of examining the space for these for these bands. And so we were walking around the space and, of course, going near, you know, um, the mixing board and the speakers. And it just, you know, of course, everything, there's sort of these waves of undulating static that was happening. And, of course, the audience is still sitting there in their, in their hats, totally perplexed. And uh, the next part was actually we were to examine the audience. So we went over and... I didn't know whether this would work. I have to admit, I didn't know whether this was, would work or not. But we started touching people's hats with uh, with these um, antennas. So if you're listening to the track, you would hear these sort of like big sounds, and that was when we were touching people's heads. And so it was funny because the first time that I did it, everyone was waiting for me to start doing it. Um, I touched the first person, and I didn't know whether people were going to freak out or not, and they just look on people's faces were shock and then everyone turned to me and grinned because everyone wanted us to touch their hats we were touching people's heads with these things and then the very last part of the performance was what we had done in advance is the performance happened around sunset and that's one of the best times to get uh, shortwave radio and so Mm -hmm. we each had tuned into a different broadcast that we knew we were able to find at the time but because we were in uh, the NASA space here at Artscape which would Barnes um, we knew all the stuff was around it we knew that no one would actually be able to hear what was really coming through our radios until we walked outside so what we did was one by one we walked outside so the static one by one turned into radio so we had broadcasts from brazil um we had broadcasts from somewhere in the american south um i think i had a french one and then brandon's was um weather or something and so we walked out and then immediately all you heard was radio and that was it Citizens Band Radio is a public frequency that enables short-distance radio communication between individuals. Citizen Band is a collaborative performance that senses, intercepts, and rebroadcasts the ubiquitous frequencies that permeate citizens within urban environments. Before we begin, please direct your attention to the front of your row for important safety information. This performance space has two exits one on the northwest side of the room and one on the southeast. Doors are clearly marked with exit signs. Please take a moment to locate the exit nearest to you. This area contains frequencies which may be harmful to sensitive individuals. To protect yourself from unwanted frequencies, raise your hands to either side of your head, palms facing inward, and use your hands to cover your ears to avoid pressure. For additional protection, a frequency deflection device, or FDD, is located under your seat. Please locate your device now.
Following the interview with Jessica Thompson, we were just listening to the Deep Wireless Ensemble performing her piece, Citizen Ban. That is all we have for today's program of Making Waves. Thank you for listening. We look forward to our return a month from now on WGXC. Making Waves is heard the second Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. on WGXC. The preceding show was recorded at Wave Farms WGXC in the Hudson Valley in New York State.